Connecticut Democrats or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. All right, folks, welcome back to this week's episode of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Cerulli. And I'm Jesse Skolnick. Jesse, this is a first. We, you and I have not done this before, so it's, it's good to be here with you. I'm excited. This week's episode was a pretty cool one. We sort of kept it uh, in line with the geography of our state. I interviewed the second congressional district congressman, Joe Courtney. And Jesse, who'd you talk to? I talked to Lisa Thomas, who's running for state Senate District uh, 35, which is uh, special to me because she's looking to replace someone I ran against for mayor last year. So I have uh, uh, an extra eye on this race. And you and Lisa are both constituents of the congressman's, correct? Uh, definitely. I, he's been at my house several times. I, I love Joe. Nice, man. So what was your conversation like with Lisa? Did you guys talk a little hometown shop talk, talk about the race? You guys probably have knocked a lot of the same doors, right? Yeah, I always have to remember there are 12 other towns in her district, and it's not just all about Vernon, but it is, it is difficult. Uh, I've, I've known Los, uh, Lisa for a couple of years now, uh, and I know she's put so much work into this campaign. I, I know her history of being a teacher and working across the aisle uh, is something that that this uh, state Senate district really needs. Uh, and, and I think that she's going to pull it off. I think she's going to do it. She came really close uh, two years ago. Uh, and uh, now this is the year that we're all going to make it happen. And my, my talk with Joe Courtney was was pretty wide ranging as well. Of course, we had to talk about, you know, two sub Joe. We talked a lot about submarine production, nerded out on some some Navy submarine facts. Uh, we covered some of the political dynamics in this race, you know, uh, on top of being known as two sub Joe, he's also been nicknamed by some of his <laughs> colleagues landslide Joe, because he won his first race by, I think like 85 votes or something like that. Um, so that was great. And then Jesse, I got to ask you about this because one of the things I just thought it would be fun for this conversation is because it's, you know, Halloween is this weekend. I thought it'd be cool to dive into a little bit of Connecticut folklore and sort of haunted history. So I'm from Trumbull, Connecticut, and around here we have the legend of the melon heads. So I did a little bit of research into the different you know, hauntings in the second congressional district. So before I say something, do you have any like any local lore, any local legends that, that sort of become prominent around Halloween? Well, I don't know about any in Vernon, but I am originally from Wallingford. And I can tell you that Wallingford was the site of the last uh, witch trial uh, that we ever had. And the witch was found not guilty. So she wasn't a witch, <laughs> but it's but it's always fun uh, to, to look back and go, wow, th things are really crazy. But at least uh, that last spooky story ended on a, on a high note. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was real. That's good to hear for for that person acquitted of witchcraft. Um, and it was it was kind of funny to just run through some of the various local legends with the congressman, you know, haunted lighthouses and haunted lakes and stuff like that. You know, not not personally a believer in the paranormal myself, but it was fun to to, to throw that in there and get a little local flavor around Halloween. So um, with that, we're going to throw it to my conversation with the second congressional district representative, Congressman Joe Courtney. Okay, folks, we are so happy to welcome back to the podcast, Congressman Joe Courtney. Congressman, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Oh, glad to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. So I want to jump right into it with an update on your race. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an off-year election, right? So off-year midterm. So we're looking at some more competitive races, and I know you're working very hard. So tell us about the state of your race and what you've been hearing from the folks in your district. So you're absolutely right that uh, midterm elections um, are always, you know, I think more competitive. Uh, you know, it's a little more challenging to spike up voter turnout. Um, and uh, as a good 
observer of politics like you, I mean, I think you know that um, a midterm election for uh, a new president um, is always uh, challenging. You know, there's always a headwind um, that I think any president encounters. And, and I think, honestly, this one's no different. So, um, you know, we knew this early on and we have been really um, organizing hard in terms of making sure that, um, you know, we, um, you know, have a, a very strong visible presence with paid media that um, I think if you look at recent cycles, um, you know, we, mm -hmm. we definitely are much more um, aggressive this time and, you know, being much yep. more uh, visible. The um, And, you know, now that this is the first sort of post-COVID election, uh, even though COVID's still kind of rattling around out there, right, um, right. you know, this there's a lot more in-person in sort of campaigning, which, uh, you know, honestly, I think people are a little rusty in terms of uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting back into the swing of it there a little bit. So, um, you know, it's um, it's definitely, you know, all about turnout and, um, you know, that we've had some, I think, really good um, messages to, to bring back to the district in terms of recent accomplishments with infrastructure, prescription drugs, mm -hmm. the veterans bill. Uh, and obviously, you know, my own personal work uh, as chairman of this power subcommittee in terms of, uh, you know, the, the shipyard, which is one of the pillars, not just of Eastern Connecticut, but the entire state in terms of an right. economic end. And talk, talk more about the, you know, submarine production, which of course we all know you as two sub Joe. Right. Uh, first of all, I, there might not be people who understand exactly what that means for, for Eastern Connecticut. It's, it's not just a figure of speech. It literally means, well, tell folks what it literally means. Sure. So when I first got elected, um, you know, Electric Boat Shipyard was really kind of almost a shadow of its former self. I mean, back in the late 80s, it had close to 30,000 people going to work there every day. I mean, it was a staggering sort of um, event just to watch people going to work and, and shift changes and whatnot. Um, you know, in the in the wake of the Cold War, where there was, uh, I think, an overreaction in terms of thinking that we, you know, didn't need to have such a strong submarine industrial base, the, the work uh, force went down to 7,000. And when I got elected in um, 06, uh, basically they had just laid off 1,300 people. They were probably looking at another 2,000 layoffs if we did not get procurement up to two Virginia-class submarines per year, which my predecessor had tried to do and had not succeeded. Um, that was initially what the plan was from the Navy to go to two per year uh, by the mid-2000s, and it just wasn't happening. When I got into office, Bush's first budget did not have a penny for um, bringing uh, production up to two. And uh, so in my first year in Congress, I was able to get a plus up in the Navy's uh, budget in both the uh, Armed Services Committee and the Defense Appropriations Committee, which actually kickstarted two per year. A congressman from Mississippi was still a good friend of mine, Gene Taylor, um, nicknamed me Two Sub Joe, uh, because that was uh, when we were able to, again, get the uh, production level up to that point, which is where it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, we've also started production on another class of submarines, the Columbia class. Yep, which the is, boomers. Uh, <laughs> Yes, the boomers, which are two and a half times the size of a Virginia class sub. So um, as I pointed out to my opponent the other night in, in New London's debate, you know, because um, he was saying, well, we should be building three a year. We're actually <laughs> building, if you really think yeah. about it, more than three a year. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, and, and obviously the workforce has grown with it. I mean, total. Um, you know, uh, employment level for electric boat Connecticut and Rhode Island is 18,000. And it's going to, mm -hmm. it's really, assuming we keep the cadence where it is right now, it'll go 
north of 24,000. Wow. I want, I want to zero in on, on one of the topics you touched on there, which is the sort of, as the tides of the Cold War sort of receded, there was a perception, and as you said, probably a correct perception, that there was less of a demand for that nuclear deterrent. But now we're living in a world where the threat of nuclear weapons being used is probably at the highest point it's been since definitely in my life, maybe in your life. Um, talk about the salience of what they're doing at Electric Boat, what they're building for our country, uh, particularly in the context of what's happening over in Ukraine and, and sort of this heightened awareness of, of the, the potency and of the severity of the nuclear threat around the world. Sure. So, um, again, the two classes have different missions. Virginia class is a a, a, a nuclear-powered submarine, but it has uh, conventional uh, weapons, mm-hmm. uh, tomahawks and, and torpedoes. So, so-called atta- attack submarines, right? Fast right. attack. Right. And the Columbia class is the uh, the ones that have the um, payload, um, and that's replacing the existing um, fleet called the Ohio class, which is over 40 years old per sub, which is starting to get very dangerous to keep operating them, you know, just the whole life of those submarines is really um, starting to get pretty sketchy after 40 years of uh, patrols. So, um, but your point is that, um, <clears throat> you know, the 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 value of uh, submarines, uh, particularly ones that don't have to surface, um, is much more heightened today. Um, in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, China has developed uh, missile technology, which really threatens surface ships as far out as 2,000, 3,000 miles from shore. I mean, they, you know, we, we saw in Ukraine, um, you know, a pretty sort of rudimentary um, missile system, right. the Neptunes, that knocked out um, Putin's flagship, Moscow. Mm-hmm. Moskva. Um, what, what is, what's out in Indo-Pacific uh, dwarfs the uh, Neptune uh, missile system. So again, submarines are the, you know, the one sort of platform that missiles can't deal, you know, are, are ineffective. And um, it, it really kind of keeps the balance of deterrence very strong there. That's why Australia made a huge decision for a real, relatively small country to scrap their diesel electric submarines and go with a nuclear powered submarines, which is the AUKUS uh, agreement that was um, entered into almost exactly uh, a year ago. Putin who, um, you know, has revived his uh, submarine program. The Russian Navy actually doesn't really have that much in the way of surface ships. Mm-hmm. And it's really because- C- of Certainly geography. one less now, right? <laughs> that's right. But but they, that's correct. And, uh, um, but they, they've definitely been investing in their new, they call it the Sever Events class, which are actually very- um, impressive uh, submarines and sort of the high north in the North Atlantic region now, which was where, you know, the, the Cold War sort of, uh, you know, um, tension between the U.S. and Russia played out um, is actually now very busy. And so, you know, we it, it, it basically right now is submarines, which were very low in terms of priority back in the mid and early 2000s is now of the highest priority, really almost in terms of the entire Department of Defense's budget. Mm-hmm. And and moreover to that point, you know, you talk about eighteen thousand jobs going eventually to north of twenty thousand jobs. Uh, I'm a UConn student. We obviously see the impact and the footprint that that companies like Electric Boat have on our engineering school. But it's not just the colleges and universities that are feeding that manufacturing pipeline. It's vocational tech. It's community colleges. Talk about what you've been doing on the policy side to make sure that, you know, when EB comes to you and says, look, we're trying to ramp up Columbia class production, we're still rolling out the next block of Virginia class subs. You know, we 
we need people to actually work the lines. Uh, what have you been doing on that front, on sort of the workforce front? Sure. So the federal government is deeply involved in, in that um, endeavor. Uh, first of all, you know, the tech schools are receive a large amount of federal dollars through the Perkins program. They fund a lot of the slots that are in uh, Wyndham Tech, Grasso Tech, um, you know, um, Wilcox Tech, where Secretary Cardona went to high school. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of, um, you know, the older populations who, um, you know, are really looking to access this opportunity, the Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act, which is the federal jobs training program, that's the funding uh, flow that goes into um, these job training programs. The Eastern Connecticut Manufacturing Pipeline, which is in our advertisements, um, has developed a curriculum where you can actually be ready to hire as a welder in only 10 weeks. Um, same thing for you know, electricians, um, you know, machinists, uh, you know, it's an eight to 10 week program and it's funded through the US Department of Labor. The um, you know, value in terms of the um, hiring and the retention of people who go through those programs is almost 100%. And wow. so as they've been feverishly hiring people, um, you know, those programs have become uh, both, you know, recognized by EB as incredibly critical, but frankly, it's also recognized nationally. There's a lot of other states in the country now that are looking at the uh, pipeline program as um, something they want to emulate. Now we're going to throw it over to Jesse Schoolnick's interview with state Senate candidate, Lisa Thomas. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Lisa Thomas, who's running for state Senate for the 35th District, which I think includes about 13 towns in the eastern part of Connecticut. Lisa, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. And you're correct. It is 13 towns from the town of Vernon all the way east to the town of Thompson on the Massachusetts line. That's a, that's a lot of land to cover. <laughs> a lot of houses yeah. and doors to knock. Most certainly is. But I love I it. Always like I always have to start off asking a little bit about the person I'm talking to. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you're running for state Senate? Sure. Uh, I have two wonderful young adult daughters who my husband, Eric, and I raised here in Coventry. They grew up with us exploring all of Eastern Connecticut and taking advantage of everything it has to offer, whether it's hiking the trails or paddling the waterways, enjoying the farm markets, all kinds of events. Uh, we, we love our last Green Valley. I am also a 37-year special education teacher, so I've spent uh, many years working with children and families, talking about education talking to students about how to collaborate and solve problems, teaching them how to do that on their own so that they're thinking for themselves as they become adults. Uh, and I also, in my back pocket, hold a law degree. I, I am a member of the Connecticut Bar Association. I did specialize in labor and employment law. However, after law school, I made the choice to continue teaching because that seemed to me the most important way to make an impact on our world. That's my preference. There are certainly lots of ways to do that. Now, other than the fact that dealing with some politicians is like dealing with children, how do you think your teaching background is going to help you uh, if you're elected to the state Senate? That's a great question. I have already been elected uh, multiple times to serve on the Coventry Town Council, which is our local governing body. And I am currently the chairwoman. 
in the past, I was the chair of a Republican majority council. Now I'm the chair of a Democratic majority council. And so serving in that role, it's very important to be able to listen carefully to the people who are at the table with you and to find ways to collaborate and reach decisions that are in the best interest of our community. Sometimes that means giving up a little bit of what you want and what you brought to the table. And it always means representing all of your constituents, whether you think they may have voted for you or not. It's actually one of the things I really like about you and I've always wanted to see you like the state Senate because today it's we're, we're so corned off into our own camps. You have Republicans and Democrats and they always want to kind of butt heads. And I know you have a history of working across the aisle. And do you think that's possible in Hartford these days? Can we come together? I, I always say, you know, we're on we're on one team fighting for the same issue. We shouldn't be looking at each other like the Red Sox and the Yankees. We sh- we're all we're all here for the betterment of Connecticut. Can you use your background uh, of reaching across the aisle and and make a difference in Hartford, or is it just a lost cause? Oh, I think I can absolutely make a difference, especially since I won't be o- the only legislator there who has this mindset. And so we'll work together to build additional coalitions. And there there are a lot of things that get done in the legislature on a bipartisan or multipartisan basis. And we can't lose sight of that. It's the issues that become controversial and lines drawn in the sand that get all the attention. But there are so many other issues that we work for, work on and move forward. So I, I am very hopeful that that kind of coalition building can continue and that it will continue to make con- Connecticut a, the great place that it is. One of the added bonuses of having you elected is that you're replacing our current state Senator Dan Champagne, who is not known for working across the aisle. So it, it's, it's kind of a plus two uh, if we get you elected. Uh, you, you came so, so close to winning this seat two years ago. What did you learn from that campaign that you've been able to use this go-around? The most important lesson I learned is, first, exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, People are done with divisiveness. They're done with partisanship. They really want to hear how you are going to work for everybody and how do you make that happen. And and I already mentioned some of... um, the ways that I've already been doing that as a town councilwoman, as the chief elected a leader here in town, I hold regular office hours so that I can make sure to hear everybody's concerns. Uh, that That is critical to, to being able to do that and move forward. I've also seen that you've discussed hospitals possibly cutting services in the district as well as your plans uh, to really push back on that. Why is that such an important issue to your race this this year? Oh, this this is such a big issue. And I have to say at this point, it's what's probably one of the biggest things driving me to keep going out and knocking doors and talking to voters, which is truly the most important thing that any candidate should learn who runs for office. You have got to talk to voters. And when I first started talking to voters back in June, people really weren't aware of this situation. And the more they learned about it, and the more that I and those and others who are working on this issue were able to get media attention, the more people understood. And really what we're looking at is the development of a rural healthcare desert here in Eastern Connecticut. 
And this is a problem that is happening across the country uh, in a place like Connecticut, where we have strong resources, this shouldn't be happening at all. So there are three hospitals um, that surround the district in Stafford, Rockville, and Vernon, uh, Stafford, Rockville, and Wyndham, where they have eliminated their labor and delivery services, uh, have suspended or eliminated their intensive care units. And because they don't have intensive care units, uh, they often will not provide surgeries. And in some instances, they eliminated these services without going through the required certificate of need hearing. So these corporations that own the hospitals uh, are really doing a disservice to our communities. We are a very rural district. 12 of the 13 towns are great distances from hospitals now where they can get services they need, including labor and delivery. And this is just wrong. We have to do better. We have to problem solve around this. And we have to figure out how to allow, how to support our community hospitals uh, so that people can access that care. Yeah, I'm actually really lucky. I live in, in the 35th district. I'm in Vernon, uh, but I'm close enough that if I need to, I can possibly go to other hospitals. But not everybody in Vernon Rockville has that ability. And specifically people out, out uh, further east in your district just don't have that. And you shouldn't have to worry about what you're going to do if you need to go to a hospital simply because uh, the hospitals in your area are, are cutting back plans. So I, I, I'm really happy to hear you uh, taking on that issue. I think, One too, of- another piece of that is, um, you know, people who live in densely populated areas like Vernon or Wyndham might not even have their own transportation simply because it might not be necessary because there is access to public transit. Um, so they rely on other, you know, walking to the hospital, grabbing a quick ride, getting on on the bus. And so those people have lost that opportunity. The other thing is it limits your choice of where you can go. So folks in Vernon um, are close to Manchester, close to Hartford, but depending on their health insurance or their primary care physician, that determines now which hospital you can go to. And it might not have been the one you would choose. So there is less choice for care. And um, here, further east in the district at Wyndham Hospital, one of the things um, they are saying is a solution is that if you have an emergency when you're in labor or you don't have transportation, they'd be happy to ambulance you down the back roads to Bacchus Hospital in Norwich. And already three babies have been born in an ambulance. Uh, I can tell you as someone who has given birth to two children, that is absolutely not the ideal place uh, to deliver a child. In addition, you know, both my children at birth needed immediate medical attention, uh, which they could not have received in an ambulance. And as if the hospital issue wasn't keeping me up at night enough, probably the number one thing on my mind, and I think a lot of Americans, is really uh, the issue of reproductive rights and and having choice. Uh, We see it all over the country under attack. Uh, The Republican uh, candidate for for governor says he's not going to do anything, but I I think a lot of people just really aren't buying that if he was elected. If elected to the state Senate, what would your, uh, your priority be in preserving a woman's right to choose? I've made it very clear, and people know I have made it very clear, that I unequivocally support Connecticut's reproductive freedom law and everything we have in place 
to protect not only access to abortion, but access to contraception, access to infertility treatments so that parents can have children. And the decision overturning Roe versus Wade calls all of that into question. The proposed federal ban on abortion that the Republican leadership is talking about calls all of this into question. We've already seen uh, a couple of universities cease providing contraception through their healthcare services on campus because there it is unclear that they're permitted to do this under their state's abortion bans. Uh, Indiana University is one of those places. The the ramifications of a federal abortion ban and just the overturn of Roe versus Wade are very far-reaching. And it isn't just women. It's men's access to reproductive care as well, which sometimes gets lost in the conversation. So I fully intend to to stand firm. You know, over the last several years, Republicans have submitted 30 or more bills in committee to erode Connecticut's protections of reproductive access and choice. And the only reason they haven't made it out of committee is because people who value reproductive care, who value choice, who value affordable access are chairing those committees. With different leadership, with Bob Stefanowski in leadership, there is no reason to trust that those bills won't be back in committee and make it to the floor for debate. And, and here's what I, I keep in mind. We are talking about um, a Republican Party that confirmed two, that pushed the confirmation of two Supreme Court justices who, in my mind, perjured themselves in their confirmation hearings and now sit on our Supreme Court, the highest court in our land. And that is where Roe v. Wade was overturned. 50 years of legal precedent was overturned. Yeah, how sad is it that we can have people... Uh nominated to the Supreme Court say Roe versus Wade is settled law. They get pushed through and then boom, within the blink of an eye, something that is you know, my entire life has been just uh, uh, taken for granted, I think is gone. And it's it just, it's just so sad. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, I'm, and we need more people like you out there fighting the good fight uh, to make sure that, that these rights and other rights aren't taken away from us because I, I think it seems it's sad. It seems rather obvious that if if Republicans can take rights away from you, if they can make it harder for you to vote, they will. They'll do that because uh, the, the the less people that vote, the better their chances of winning. The more people that vote, Democrats win. People like you win, and and that's actually the name of the game as we get into November eighth. Uh, voter turnout. Uh, if people turn out to vote. Democrats are going to win. Uh, what what can we do as we get the, get into the final stretch here to make sure that as many people uh, get out there on election day or, or vote or vote through absentee ballot? Well, yesterday I knocked on the doors of 111 voters. <laughs> That's what we can do. We need to keep knocking on doors and having conversations with voters. And we need to keep picking up the phone and calling voters. The number one 
way to build trust and support is to have conversations. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with people at their doors or on the phone where at the end of the conversation, that voter says to me, you know, you are a great listener. Clearly, you have folks' best interests in mind. And you've persuaded me that you will represent me well. I I even had an accidental phone call to somebody in Southern Illinois, because sometimes phone numbers, you know, get reassigned when they're cell phones. And his first question to me was, how did you get my number? Why are you calling me in, in Illinois? And as we chatted, I was able to build up his trust. Um, and in the end, he you know, thanked me for having a calm conversation with him, even though he isn't even here in Connecticut. And as a matter of fact, he called me back five minutes later to ask to to say again how much he appreciated the conversation and my willingness to listen that if he lived here in Connecticut he'd be voting for me <laughs> people always ask me uh, when I'm running for things is it really worth knocking on all those doors and I said yeah you can send out mailers you can leave behind things at the door but there is nothing that beats that personal interaction with people they see your face they they appreciate that you're taking the time to do, to listen to them because so many people out there just want someone to talk to and listen to their grievances and and they really appreciate uh when when folks running for office do that because it's not easy you know this you've done this so many times giving up your life for months on end just be out there and knock on doors it takes a toll on you and i I really do appreciate that other people appreciate that because uh it's a lot so i i really uh am thankful again for people because it's one thing to do it for a town for 13 towns on the eastern connecticut that's really hard to imagine how you can fit that all in but you're doing it. it it's great Thank you. It, you're right. You do have to make the decision to forego a lot of other things during a campaign, especially the last few months. It, it really isn't a, a, a selfless act. You know, you're really out there because there are things that you value and the people you speak with value. And so it might mean you're not home for dinner or you you miss a birthday. But in the end, you're there because you want to make things better and improve people's lives including the people who are closest to you and who you love. I mean, truly in front of me as I knock every door are my two daughters. This is the world they're going to be living in. I've had the, the privilege to live in a world that has seen mostly peaceful times, that has seen strong economies, that has had a strong environment. And now we're facing a time with incredible issues related to climate change. We are struggling to figure out how to make our economy work in the best ways possible. And it doesn't feel very peaceful and it's very divisive. For all these issues facing us, I know with candidates like you running and winning, uh, we're going to win in the end. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on us, uh, come on here with us today. And uh, I, I hope you, you kick some butt uh, on November 8th. And I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. I'm I'm out there for everybody and for all your children and your families. This is, this is why we do what we do as candidates. Thanks for this opportunity, Jesse. And now we head back to the second part of our interview with Congressman Joe Courtney. 
you talk a bit about, you know, you, you talk about bringing all this money for the sub programs, bringing in money for workforce programs. I imagine that takes a lot of, you know, cross the aisle collaboration. How does that work? And, and it seems like this might be one area talking about national defense where there's still a level of cooperation between at least some of your Republican colleagues and, and many of your Democratic colleagues. And I know you've mentioned that in your advertising as well. Talk about that sort of cross aisle collaboration and how you've you know worked with folks across the aisle and how that sort of plays in your district where you're uh, running against someone who maybe is on the more extreme end of the Republican spectrum. Sure. So, I mean, there's no question the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate counterpart are... Um, probably among the healthiest um, committees in, in Washington, uh, where, you know, a lot of the sort of um, fault lines that separate collaboration and other committees uh, doesn't exist. And when we, um, you know, realized that we, we really had to start, um, you know, getting things moving in, in Groton, um, first of all, I think it's important to note under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 13, states clearly that the um, that the Congress shall provide and maintain a Navy. I mean, at the end of the day, it's Congress that makes the decision, not the president and not the Navy making the decision for the Navy. And so, um, again, starting my first year in Congress, um, you know, it was really important to develop relationships with uh, folks. Um, you know, the, the one thing that the submarine program offers is, is that its supply chain extends to 48 states across the country. Uh, we mm -hmm. have a teaming arrangement. Mm -hmm with um, a shipyard down in Virginia. So there's some natural geographic sort of um, overlap in terms of other members that, you know, we obviously have been um, really working hard. And um, as my seniority has uh, grown and I'm now chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee, um, you know, I, I, you know, certainly try to work with um, members from Mississippi and California and um uh, Alabama, who have shipyards uh, that, you know, uh, have a similar um, challenge. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm, I'm, you know, really enjoy the work because you, you really feel like you're seeing mm -hmm. really tangible results. I mean, as a Democrat, sometimes people ask, why are, are you so, you know, passionate or engaged about that? But honestly, if you look at our party's history, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was the greatest naval president in America, right. hands down, right. you know, yeah. uh, it was a 5,000 ship fleet in World War II. But really what distinguished him was really not what happened after Pearl Harbor. It was what he did before Pearl Harbor because he recognized that our, we're a maritime country. And, and during the New Deal, there was a lot of investment in sort of building up our shipyard industrial base capacity. Thank God, you know, because it, it was necessary uh, in the 40s and 50s. We let that mm -hmm. slip. And, and, and something that I think Democrats should really um, embrace because these are, in most cases, good union jobs, you know, right, in, in right. the shipyards there, um, you know, that that's that's something that I think is a really um, salient and, and important uh, way to connect with constituency that we've sort of lost um, connection with over the years. And, and from, you know, looking at 2016 and, you know, where we are today, um, I think that's a critically important um, priority for our party. I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. And uh, talking about FDR, I think was like either like an assistant or deputy secretary of the Navy during his career. Um, I think you're exactly right on the manufacturing jobs. Um, World by the way, War I coming, he, yep, was, yep. he was the assistant secretary of the Navy during World War One under uh, uh, Secretary Josephus Daniels. Wow, who is the guy they named? <laughs> that's the guy they named the Cup of Joe afterwards. Because oh, uh, really? He was the one. Who, 
Yeah, he banned alcohol huh. on board Navy ships. So that, so they all had to drink coffee instead, and, and they <laughs> nicknamed it Cup of Joe. I did not know that. So I guess I guess if you're a Joe, you have to know your, the history of all that, right? That's right. <laughs> So uh, on that lighter note, I want to move to a topic. I always try to do something fun towards the close of these interviews. Um, Halloween is coming up. Uh, folks who know me know that, uh, although I don't necessarily believe in the supernatural, I am fascinated by local folklore um, and driving around the state campaigning. I always pick up interesting stories about, you know, various legends and monsters that lurk in the forest somewhere. Uh, so I want to go run down with you on the second congressional district. First of all, you grew up in Connecticut. Do you ever remember hearing any like, you know, local folklore type things that, that, that have stuck with you? There, it has a rich history. There's no question about it. Um, and, um, particularly in Willimantic, um, the Frog City. Yeah, someone was just telling me about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, back in colonial times. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there was um, this sort of um, stampede or avalanche of frogs that uh, people thought, again, was uh, initially at least that, you know, it was some kind of uh, monsters or, you know, supernatural <laughs> creatures that were there. So, um um, yeah, there's some pretty comical stories about that. There's, you know, uh, you know, it was a scene of uh, a lot of battles, like the Battle of Essex and the Battle of Stonington uh, during uh, the first was during the World War, uh, sorry, the War of 1812. And the second was during the Revolutionary War. And, you know, there's ghost stories and, you know, shipwrecks. And, you know, there, there's definitely lots of, uh, you know, I think pretty rich uh, tales that people still tell. Yeah, so I did. I did a bit of research, and again, in honor of Halloween, I want to ask you: Have you ever heard of the New London Ledge Lighthouse Ghost? Is <laughs> one of them that came up here. Uh, I've been to the White House, the Lighthouse. I did not know there was a ghost, but I don't doubt it. How about the How about the Gardner Lake Ghost? <laughs> this is This is a Wikipedia <laughs> rabbit hole here. Yeah, that's uh, in Colchester, and um, I have yeah. been to Gardner Lake, but I don't know the ghost. <laughs> and then the final one that I found on Wikipedia was something called the Jewett City Vampires, which I guess is, <laughs> is that, well, I'm assuming you, have you heard you, of that? You, you're, you're, I'm over three. However, I would say that the old Norwich State Hospital, um, uh -huh. there was definitely a lot of seances that were going on there uh, <laughs> after they closed the hospital and um, people were breaking in and they thought it was kind of a nice spooky place to, um, to Interesting. hold seances. So we're talking about Halloween. Halloween, especially in an even number year, means that election day is right around the corner. I want to give you the chance to tell our listeners uh, what can they do to help your campaign? I know your organizers, and I, I do have to shout out here, Ethan Warshler, my old roommate, who I know is on your campaign. Um, what can folks uh, do to help out Ethan and you and all the other folks on your campaign working to get you reelected in these next few weeks before election day? Sure. So like I said, I think people are still kind of a little rusty, you know, from uh, the 2020 election. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, one thing that I think we're finding, uh, just to speak of UConn, for example, is just that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got a deadline fast approaching for registrations. We're pushing hard to uh, remind people to get registered uh, because, um, you know, Election Day uh, registration which is perfectly legal here in the state of Connecticut. It can, it can really jam up the town halls. Yeah and, yeah. and what we don't want is people turning away and not, not uh, voting because they get mm -hmm. discouraged. It was going to take too long to vote. That happened actually in 2018. Yes. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. Up in stores that's there. Um, you know, we also have, uh, you know, um, rides to the polls because now people are going to be doing a lot more in-person voting. And so we want certainly people to know that they can get help if they need help, you know, driving to the polls, 
But clearly, um, this is a huge election. Um, there are so many things at stake here in terms of, um, you know, who's going to have the gavel in the House of Representatives. As you pointed out, the second district is, you know, always um, a district that you got to stay on your toes. Yep. And, uh, you're, you're no stranger to close races, right? That's right. Landslide Joe, 80, 83 <laughs> votes. Got so, all these uh, nicknames, right? <laughs> that's right. So um, anyway, we... Um, you know, welcome anyone who has any questions about how they can help the campaign in the last two weeks. Uh, and we've got um, lots of town committee, you know, branches and headquarters all throughout Eastern Connecticut. So there's lots of ways people can help. Awesome. And, and I just I want to underscore too. what was it, 83 or something votes yes. that uh, your first election or your first winning election that you won in 2006. Um, so so, folks, I mean, every door you knock, every phone call you you make, every person you reach out to matters because, you know, people like Joe and elections like 2006 and maybe 2022 are going to be very close and they'll depend on every voter contact. So, uh, Congressman Courtney, any any parting message for our listeners here before we let you go? Well, as you point out, um, if anyone has a question about whether their vote counts, uh, have them call me uh, because uh, I went through that <laughs> recount process and, and um, it, you know, I don't recommend it to anyone. The, um, uh, but as I said, they, you know, we want Connecticut to really lead the way for, um, you know, continuing the progress that we made with infrastructure, prescription drug bill, veterans mm -hmm. assistance, uh, the Chips and Science Act. I mean, there's so many things that are really um have been that have happened in the last two years that are going to really benefit the state of Connecticut, which is poised to to really um, whether it's clean energy, uh, you know, whether it's you know the, bringing back semiconductors and and chips, uh, and obviously mm -hmm. the you know new investments in shipbuilding. Uh, you know, it, Democrats have really I think done a good job for the state of Connecticut, and we want to make sure we're poised to continue that work over the next two years. Couldn't agree more. And I think some of the stuff you mentioned there about, um, you know, the chips in, in, in bringing back some of that semiconductor production obviously factors pretty heavily into the, the shipyard as well, because I would imagine those those new submarines use quite a lot of semiconductors. They sure so. do. <laughs> <laughs> Does, do you have any? I remember someone telling me that car, cars use like some insane, some number that I was like shocked by. Do you have any any ballpark on like what it is for like a Virginia class submarine? What what their sort of needs are in terms of the semiconductors? Uh, all I know is that the number of parts and uh, pieces that go into a Virginia class, I mean, it is in the multiple thousands. Of, right, right. You know, um, and you know, uh, right now the the U.S. Con Content is roughly about 97, 98%. Wow. But some of but some of the non-US content is some of those critical, um, you know, critical minerals, critical uh, items mm -hmm. that um, you know, most cases the US invented, but we sort of lost uh, our right. way in terms of the, the stuff going um, offshore. Well, two sub Joe, Landslide Joe, you're bringing it back. You're helping uh, keep the Eastern Connecticut manufacturing pipeline alive and thriving, and you're also helping advance all the things Democrats hold near and dear to us. So we, we want to thank you for all that. We want to thank you uh, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, you guys heard it here. Uh, you know, Joe needs your help. It's a tough race. Uh, it's going to be competitive all around the board. So if you can make it out there to knock doors or make phone calls for Joe Courtney and all of our down ballot candidates, please do so. So Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. So Jesse, those are two really cool interviews. Um, love the talk with with Lisa, and I know you guys, uh, you know, sharing a hometown. I'm sure both of you are out there, you know, knocking doors, getting involved in these last couple of weeks. Definitely, uh, voter turnout is the name of the game, uh, and I know uh, from what I've seen, uh, we're going to win that battle. I, I know Halloween is right around the corner, but 
Sometimes I skip Halloween because I'm focused on the World Series. Unfortunately, my Red Sox are not in there this year, uh, but I know Lisa is a huge baseball fan. Uh, we have some new fields in Coventry that she was a champion of. So uh, if we can't, if I can't focus on baseball on the national level, at least I can uh, hopefully watch some good games here uh, locally. That's that's talk about name of the game, literally. <laughs> you know, <laughs> fighting to make sure that uh, boys and girls sports can can have sort of equal standing and resources is awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, Phillies Astros. Um, it's kind of like picking between two evils as a Mets fan. <laughs> oh, oh no! Yeah, I, I apologize uh, uh, hearing you're a Mets fan. I, I thought you were going to do it this year, and then oh, you know, you know what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do know what happened. So um, I guess, I guess maybe I don't know if you saw those videos of Ted Cruz being booed at Yankee Stadium when he was there for the for the last couple games of the um, ALCS. But maybe I'll root for the Phillies just to see Ted Cruz's team lose. And as you've been saying, folks, you know, head to mobilize.us. Uh, it'll, it'll help you get connected to all kinds of events in your area. And if you live around Vernon, uh, maybe you go knock some doors with Jesse and with Lisa and with Congressman Joe Courtney, huh? And we're going to even have some of the uh, leadership from uh, the Connecticut General Assembly over there on Sunday. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Nice, nice. Well, we'll uh, hope, hopefully you guys have good fall weather for that. Good Hollow weekend. And with that, for all of our listeners, we wish you a farewell and we'll see you on the next episode of Connecticut Rats to CT Democrats podcast. Mm-hmm.